Wallace wasn't sure how she ended up living with her two foster sisters in the housewares section of Leviathan's department store. She just knew she needed to line all their shoes up perfectly under the table, displaying the latest in small appliances. She was the oldest, after all, and it was her responsibility to make sure they had the latest fashion and everything was kept shiny. She sat beneath the table polishing their shoes while eyeing the plump pillows in the bedding department across the aisle, wishing there was more than one bed on the display floor for the three of them, because Simone always steals the covers. The familiar sound of carnival music begins to drift in as her two foster sisters run to her, breathless and excited about the roller coaster. They're younger than she remembered them being. Just little girls, really. No, you can't go ride on the roller coaster, she tells them. Tomorrow's Christmas and there's too much to do. Things need to be shiny. But that really wasn't the reason. Wallace had never told anyone, not even herself. But she was secretly afraid of the roller coaster. It went places she didn't understand. It was frightening in places it shouldn't be, thrilling in other places. It was a paradox she feared she would never resolve, irresistibly enticing while repulsive at the same time. Dizzying heights and terrifying falls she had no control over yet was led to believe she was perfectly safe by virtue of a thin plastic strap belting her in for safety. Her foster sisters protested that Christmas just isn't Christmas without the roller coaster. She was spoiling everything. Wallace gave in. The pressure from the ones she loved more than anything was just too great. Simone and Cassandra had been there for her since the beginning. They were the only family she truly felt she had. They deserved to have a little fun at Christmas. Strapping them in for safety in the car just behind her, she warned them to hold on tight to each other before settling into her own car alone. She pulled the strap across her lap as she took a deep breath. Next to her sat the parachute older foster children usually carry with them for safety. Swallowing the lump in her throat as the ride lurched forward and began its ascent, she instinctively reached out and patted it for comfort. They quickly reached the very top of the highest peak the ride offers, but as they crested it, rather than beginning the dizzying ride down, the tracks broke off and stretched outward into blue sky. The rail cars in which she and her foster sisters were strapped were mid-air, without any support. Wallace had always suspected this could happen, and at first was relieved she'd brought the parachute. But what about her sisters? Save herself and let them fall to their deaths? or quickly strap it on them and let them live to face the world without her to protect them. 
little girls don't do well in this world without someone who truly loves them watching out for them. Every Christmas Eve, their foster mother has her read Hans Christian Andersen's Little Match Girl aloud as a reminder of what the world really thinks of orphaned children. Wallace realized as the cars she and the girls were in began to plummet that neither option was acceptable. She couldn't live without them, nor could they live without her. She would go to her death along with them, her eyes wide open and her heart filled with love for her foster sisters. And it was because her eyes were open that she saw the tentacles reaching up from beneath Humboldt Bay. They were what held up the roller coaster. It was then she realized it wasn't the earth to which they were crashing down. It was his open mouth. They were heading for the belly of the beast. Wallace had no idea who or what this beast's name was, but they got there from Leviathan's department store. <laughs> she woke with a start, a dark, menacing laughter ringing in her ears. Sitting up, she shook the early morning cold from her bones and crossed to her desk. Despite concealing it from Stephen, she had kept a poetry journal into which her every waking thought was poured in verse. Some day she would show it to him when she was ready. And as this poem tumbled out onto the page from her fingertips, she knew she had written something special. She sat reading it, contemplating whether this should be the Christmas present she'd been hoping to find for him. Something unsentimental, yet from the heart. Something insightful. Quickly she gave it the title it deserved, before adding the final period at the end, using a little too much force as she jabbed the page with her pen. Removing the poem she'd titled Into the Belly of the Beast from her journal, she folded it neatly, before sliding it into the card she'd made the night before and writing Stephen's name on the envelope with a flourish. Stephen woke with a start. He could have sworn he heard a loud noise. A single loud thump or crack. He knew with the instinct of an artist that within that sound was a volume of poetry, and within that volume was a single poem that he knew he needed to commit to paper immediately. Jumping up from his little bed in the apartment above the carriage house, he rushed to his desk and rolled a sheet of paper into the typewriter. Within minutes, he was reading the first poem of his new collection aloud and chuckling to himself about the speedy birth of what may be his finest work yet. 
He couldn't wait to show it to Wallace, especially since it was inspired by that awful dream of her and her foster sisters plunging to their deaths from the roller coaster ride at Leviathan's department store, the one propped up by the beast. Yes, maybe he'd called the volume Retail Reality, but what to title this poem? He had no card to give her, no gift other than what was in his head and his heart, but he had an envelope and wrote Wallace's name on it. Scrolling back up to the top of the poem, in a flash it came to him. He typed the title in all caps before scrolling back down to put the final period at the very end. Reading it once before signing his name at the bottom, he folded it neatly and then slid into the belly of the beast inside the envelope and sealed it shut. It was as good a Christmas present as any poet had ever given his love, he told himself, as he dressed and prepared to spend Christmas morning with her and her foster family. The single sharp tap woke me with a start, which was confusing because in the dream I was falling to my death. So what was that sound? The morning fog swirling around the window was just beginning to glow with the first steps of this newborn day, yet I was already dreading what was to come. I was still as clueless as when I arrived about how to generate some kind of teen-appropriate income here and it made preparing for a Christmas morning gift exchange awkward. I hadn't resorted to gifting a poem to anyone in a long time, but the dream seemed to sum up what Christmas was about perfectly. It encapsulated the bitterness I'd long felt over the transformation of the most important holiday in one of the world's largest religions, to a buying spree that started the day after Thanksgiving and didn't stop till bank accounts were overdrawn and the landscape littered with pine needles and shiny things. Shaping it into a poem was almost effortless, as if it was writing itself. I had the cards I'd made for Wallace and Simone the night before, so when it was finished, made copies for each and signed my name at the bottom. It was the best I could do, given the circumstances. The title may be a little derivative, but how are they going to know? Curiously, I met Simone in the hallway on my way down to the kitchen. She tried to hide the two envelopes behind her back, where they stayed until she shoved them in the pocket of the apron Betty had each of us wear while making sweet rolls. But I'd seen them and I know she'd seen mine. Wallace was the only one who had dressed, and the knowing look Simone and I exchanged said it had more to do with Stephen's arrival from the carriage house than anything else. 
she had with her a single envelope, which she handed Stephen with a blush. He slid the one fingernail he keeps long beneath the seal to open it. It's the one on his pinky finger, the one he wears the skull ring on in both dimensions. I don't think Wallace was expecting his smile to fade the way it did as he read the poem, though. The color drained from his face, and his hands began to shake as he handed her the envelope he'd brought. This was getting interesting, to us anyway. Betty and Emery were engrossed in the packages of shiny things they'd bought each other, understandably. As Wallace read what Stephen had written, she, too, went pale. How is this possible? she said in an audible whisper. I'm not sure when the goosebumps started, but something told me we needed to hear the poem, and from the look on Simone's face, she agreed. We both began snapping our fingers like the beatniks do at their coffee shop poetry readings, softly calling her out. And as she read it aloud, Simone and I each reached into the pocket of our apron and pulled out the cards we'd made. Inside each card was the poem we'd each hastily written, inspired by the dream that woke us in our beds. How the four of us could have each written exactly the same poem, inspired by exactly the same dream, would become one of many legends to come out of the House of Phantods. Of course, there are those who will say it was a Christmas miracle. I disagree. I think of it as the insatiably hungry grumbling coming from the belly of the beast. Ho, 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 ho. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.